0: mm <laughs> Kathleen Aller is the global healthcare marketing strategy lead for InterSystems. Their software solutions are inside about a billion healthcare records around the world. And Kathleen's role is to help tell stories about their data platform, Fire, Connected Health, and a lot more. In today's episode, Kathleen shares insights from policies and regulation that she's seen implemented around the world and about how being able to relate ideas through storytelling has been a career game changer for her. We're excited to hear what she has to say. So let's get started started. Welcome to the show today. My name is Joy Rios. I am joined by my esteemed colleague, Cherise Maynard. And today we have as a guest, Kathleen Aller from InterSystems. Kathleen, I am so Grateful to get to spend more time with you. I can't wait to share with our audience who you are and what you do. So if you could please take a moment to introduce yourself and, you know, a little bit about what your piece of the health IT puzzle is and where you kind of live in the healthcare ecosystem.
1: Okay. Well, thank you for having me. It was great fun talking with you on your cross-country tour, and I'm glad to join you today. I am the Director of Healthcare Market Strategy at InterSystems. InterSystems is a data technology company that really focuses on helping with mission-critical applications, and healthcare is one of the the largest of those. So we're the software that's inside Epic. We're the software that's inside about a billion health records around the world. And we also offer interoperability platform that's used across the world and an EHR that's sold outside of the U.S., my team is responsible for telling stories about all of those products. So we tell stories about our data platform, we tell stories about fire, we tell stories about connected health. And really, we have a market intelligence function, a product marketing function, and a market evangelism function within my group. Well, you
0: had shared with me that you had been working in health IT for more than 40 years. So I imagine you have seen <laughs> quite a lot and heard quite a few stories. Are there any in particular that stand out to you that, that you'd like to share with us? The
1: stories that... I am most interested in are where we're using the results of patient care data to really understand what we do in healthcare and how we can do it better. So early on in my career was the beginnings of DRG payment mechanisms. And it was where we were starting to look at what happened as well as the financial implications of care. And we we started to be able to say look, here is how we're using orthopedic implants. Here are the the implants that we're using. Here's the variability. We could start pinpointing that and and documenting the data for that. Today, we do a lot of the same things, but we have a whole lot more precision in that data. And so we can use that data to understand the variability of care for life sciences and, and drug development. We can use it to help with solving for quality measurement and helping organizations automate the process of measuring quality and then pushing that out so that so that we can in fact all have transparency and visibility to that. I really like it when people are solving problems creatively like taking data and saying not only can we use this for healthcare but look we've got data across the whole city the whole New York metropolitan area and we can use that for syndromic surveillance in COVID, we can use that to help alert when a patient with mental health conditions ends up at Rikers Island Prison and let their care manager know about it and improve their care. We can use that information to help worried family members find out that their loved ones had been admitted to the hospital in the event of a disaster. So taking data assets and using them for all kinds of ways to improve care.
0: I imagine that taking pieces of data points or whatnot and then turning it into something that's real, that that makes somebody feel something that affects the decision that they make or how they decide to move forward must be kind of your wheelhouse of like how do you turn kind of scientific data or just like all this information into something that people care about and can you know make better
1: choices or help people get better outcomes. Mm-hmm. Is that fair to say? It is. We've been doing that I was thinking back on my history as as I was thinking about this call today and we started doing that with really just financial data. And In the early and mid-80s, we started being able to say, okay, we know all the services that got delivered, the things we build for, and we can start delving into that. And then we got to the point where we could look at those services across an acute care stay. And then we managed to bring in outpatient data. And each time we're kind of jumping up orders of magnitude. And then we brought clinical data in. But, you know, that really wasn't possible until we had the meaningful use rules and the EHR stimulus program that was part of, of the uh, infrastructure bills in two, back in 2008. But, but then we standardized electronic health record data and we could start bringing that in. And now we're able to look at images and we're able to look at text and mine that. So, you know, a friend of mine likes to talk about punctuated equilibrium, which is a view of evolution that says things don't happen gradually, they happen in bursts and then they stabilize and they happen in another burst. We've really seen that with the kind of information available across the decades now. And is that,
0: I mean, that's not just centralized in the U.S., right? Like that's happening all around the world?
1: It's happening all around the world, but it it partly depends on getting to a certain level of adoption of basic information systems. So as a national economy invests more in health IT and as hospitals have EHRs, as primary care providers have EHRs you then start having more data available to do that. So you really can't do that aggregation and normalization of data until you get to some base level. What are some of
0: the main countries that you get to understand that kind of data from or that you get to absorb that kind of data from? Like, is, Are there any that stand out
1: to you? Well, the U.S. is a big one. The U.K. is another area that's that's doing a lot with this. It's been interesting to watch because it's not just dependent on having the source EMR systems, but it's also dependent on having information sharing rules that make it possible to bring together those data sets. So Sweden was an early example of a national health information exchange. Germany, which has fabulous IT, did not have the same kind of investment in digital health information sharing until the last few years. So we're starting to see a huge growth there. Italy's growing tremendously in that. Uh, The Middle East is growing tremendously in that. One of the areas we're working now is in South Africa, which has some unique information sharing that's been spurred by payers. We see a little less of it in in Latin America, and we're starting to see more of it in Asia. Let me ask
2: you a a question, um, Kathleen. I am a huge Irish fan. And um, I think a lot of people in our sector know you guys by Iris, but in the past um, year, you guys have um, updated your, um, the um, health share. So I'm wondering when you have a new iteration of something that you've already done well, how do you, are you given the flexibility to come up with the whole market strategy? Or are you giving guidelines? How do you- Go about saying that. I know we said this was great, but now we have this new thing, you know, version of the thing. Well, that's
1: usually a collaborative effort. I mean, it's never all one person. In fact, one of the things I've learned over my career is that I work better in a team where we can bounce ideas off one another and kind of cycle upward and and get the, make the ideas better and better. Usually, what we try to do with something like that, and and you know, our health share product is an example of that, is to say, okay what can we do better this time around? What have we added to it? Do we have a new market segment? Is it just a a better, faster, stronger way of doing the same thing? Or is it a whole new thing? You know, one of the things I I was doing today was talking with people about, look, we've got specific use cases we do this for. Let's recluster some of the, the ways we're talking about things. So you know, sometimes it's, it's fun when it's a whole new product and you can write about it and think about what's great and name it and go through all the, the uh, focus groups and other things around that. But sometimes it's just a matter of how do we reinvent ourselves? How do people think about this now? You know, interoperability was a big t- term eight to 10 years ago, and then it went out of fashion. People didn't want to buy interoperability. That was techie. That was that was too utilitarian. Then it became all the rage again. So you see cycles in what people are interested in and how they want to talk about what may be the same thing. And we have to try to keep up with that. You know, one of the things that
0: really stuck with me around our the conversation that we got to have on our hike was around policy and regulations and how they affect Well, populations around the world and how you can expect different outcomes based on the policies that are put in place. And you had mentioned a program that is available in Australia for patients of a certain age that something gets mailed to them. And and that's how can, can you share with our listeners what that product I mean, what what that policy is and how they tackle that problem? Because you're going to be able to speak to it much more <laughs> fluently than I am. I just remember just being one of its existence.
1: Yeah, well, you're probably not old enough to care about this yet. But <laughs> I'm of an age where uh, my friends and I pass around a set of cocktail napkins when each person hits 50 that says, all grown up and ready for a colonoscopy. In the U.S., that's a big milestone. In Australia where there's a national health system or a national payment system for healthcare. What you see on, on TV is ads to take that mailing they gave you and send in your little sample as a screening so they can do universal screening on everybody over the age of 50. They can send that out every couple of years. It's not as accurate as a colonoscopy, but it lets them then focus on a smaller population for more invasive testing. Here, we tend to say, no, 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 everybody should have a colonoscopy. Now, that's changing some. You see lots of ads on TV for some alternate testing, but it's actually taken a while to get acceptance on that testing, and it's still considered the norm to have a colonoscopy. That has a huge impact on cost and resource allocation. I'm uh, certainly not about to attack the fabulous GI specialists we have in this country, the fabulous care settings we have in this country, but the choices we've made around some of those kinds of preventive things affect how many people we can treat and how we how we allocate resources across our whole health economy. Right, so the way
0: I understand it is they blanket, every, you know, and basically send out a sample kit to everybody over a certain age in the entire country and then advertise, okay, get your sample back to us by a certain date, and then that gives them enough information on who to target for, you know, any results that they find, correct?
1: That's my understanding. Okay. I I mean,
0: I just think you have a very unique perspective of insight into how other countries handle population health. I was genuinely fascinated because I didn't know that that existed as
1: well and I'm also always interested we do business all around the world so whenever I go to visit another country or to speak or to visit customers I always do a fair amount of research on the health system and the health issues in that country I'm always interested in both the similarities and the differences I try to be really careful about language Sometimes they get that wrong. We were telling a story about a really fabulous organization we work with in London that does end-of-life care, care planning. So it's a group called Coordinate My Care. And what they've done is they originally said, we want to train primary care providers advising patients who are had terminal conditions, helping them to put a plan in place. Then they said, you know, we can't share that effectively. So they digitized it. And then they realized that the whole health ecosystem needed access to that plan. The ambulance service, the the GP, the hospital all needed access to that. And they worked with InterSystems on the third version of that. Well, it's a fabulous program. What they find is by having a care plan in place, patients have confidence that their wishes are going to be respected. A very high percentage of patients with the plan who pass on are able to die in their place of choice at their home or in hospital if that's what they choose or in a nursing facility if that's their choice. Much higher rates than in the U.S., for example, or in the rest of England. That's great. I made the mistake of talking about that once at a conference where it was taboo to have. It wasn't just socially taboo. It was against the law to have a DNR order. (laughs) So every now and then I get it wrong. I really? Like <laughs> against the law? In some countries, that is the case. Wow. I wouldn't have guessed that. You know, if if you believe that it it could, in fact, ca- lead to uh, people being discouraged from getting care
2: or that it could against, against them that. in some way. Okay. So you brought up a, a little bit of a point a few minutes ago that I wonder about in this, because we went through this pandemic phase. And those of us in our circle know it's hard to connect with clients when you have to see them in different countries and all over the place anyway. But we know that they need those touch points, right, to stay a good relationship with us. So during the pandemic and sort of coming out of this pandemic phase, how were you able to stay connected with your clients, keep those touch points and how difficult was it? Do you see it changing going forward how you stay connected to your customers?
1: It's pretty similar to what we're doing right now where we use Zoom and Microsoft Teams and uh, Google Meet and all the other platforms. It's actually been, I think, a huge spur to innovation. And I'm sure you hear that from a lot of the people you speak with. We've been hearing not only as our virtual visits critical, but we've done virtual implementations you know, when you're in the middle of implementing a system and you're close to go live, you don't want to just stop it. You don't want to put it on pause because you've done a lot of knowledge transfer. You have everything ready to go. So, you know, fairly early in the pandemic, we did our first virtual go live with our EMR and our track care EMR in uh, New Zealand, and it went really well. And since then, we've been doing that more and more around the world. We keep in touch the same way we do here. Most of our events have gone to virtual. That's been, hit or miss this year we've kind of adapted to choosing different kinds of events than we used to do in the past because some of them work better in person versus online but I've actually been incredibly impressed at how well everything's pivoted you know my mother was telling me stories about when she was growing up and, and polio would shut everything down you couldn't go to school you couldn't go to swimming pool you were shut down And they didn't have the options we have now. We kind of kept going, and and InterSystems had a great year last year. Our customers did well. We held steady. Our employees didn't miss a beat. And I am in a semi-remote role anyway, so I'm used to being remote. But I felt like everybody else was on a level playing field with me. It was kind of fun this time around. (laughs) That was the good part of it. So can we talk about you a little bit more and how...
0: Your career path has, how did you get your job? Did, was it a linear path? Did you know what you wanted to do when you were eight years old? Like, how did, it, how did you end up where you are? And if somebody wanted to get your job, how would they do so?
1: Well, when I was eight years old, health IT didn't really exist much. <laughs> but uh, I wanted to be a doctor. My father was with Merck, so I don't, and I had always kind of had an interest in healthcare. Ultimately, by the time I finished college, I had concluded I wasn't going to go to medical school. I didn't didn't think it was the right thing for me. I actually got into a one of the companies that sort of invented decision support healthcare business decision support back in the seventies and in the early eighties when I was looking for a position, I I got there got into that through my writing. So I was writing documentation moved from there into product management. I told them when I interviewed that I'd be there two years and go to grad school. Well, I went to grad school, I just never left. (laughs) So, and I was thinking about it. I was with my first company for 31 years. It started as Amherst Associates and then it became HBO and company and then it became HBOC and then it became McKesson. And so it evolved a lot. It swallowed up a lot of things. And every time I was ready to leave, there was a new challenge. So I did writing. I did product management. I did software design. I led innovation. I led various reporting initiatives. I got into health policy issues. So it was kind of fun. Every time I thought that I was ready to move on, there was something new. But no, it wasn't, it wasn't intentional. It was accidental. And I, I consider it the best thing that could have happened to me because I love health IT. Do you think eight-year-old you would be proud? I think so. I think eight-year-old May would have said, oh, that's not what I had in mind. (laughs) But one of the things I love is that my daughter is working in in healthcare administration now. And I feel as though, I mean, she didn't choose to follow it in my footsteps, but it's kind of exciting to see that she's doing that too. I imagine you've
0: absolutely had an influence on her career choices.
1: Well, she at least heard about it a lot.
0: (laughs) Yeah. Well, to that end, do you have any advice for women? I, I like to ask folks if there's any challenges that you have faced that you think somebody else could hopscotch or skip over just by sharing the lessons that you've learned. Is there anything or piece of advice that you could give for women to kind of help catapult them
1: in their career? I was thinking back on what really helped me, and I I can think of, of several things. One is that several people were willing to invest in me over the course of my career. And just latching onto those relationships and nurturing those is so valuable. Several of them are men, but just having people invest in you and seeking those people out and finding them really made a huge difference to me colleagues who were willing to teach me how to be a speaker, executives who opened doors, uh, peers who who would coach me on little things and point things out and just take me under their wing. That's been one of the things that's really helped. Another is, you know, on my first, it wasn't my first business trip, but it was one of my early business trips in my early time in product management. I went with my boss to a customer on the West Coast and He's standing at the bulletin at the blackboard or the whiteboard and and doing all kinds of calculations and rapidly having this discussion. I was watching them thinking, I can't do that. I can't do that. I'm going to fail at this. I can't do that. And somewhere in the course of that meeting, I did one of those paradigm shifts where it's like, no, I can't do that. I can do this. And recognizing that you can't be somebody else. You got to interpret the role, the job, whatever, based on who you are and bring that uniqueness to it. Now, I'm a storyteller. I'm a writer. I'm a communicator. I'm good at math. I understand math. But I'm not somebody who's going to be up there doing massive calculations on the fly. But I can tell stories. I can relate things. And that's been one of the most valuable things I learned. I love that. Thank you.
2: So tell us, when you're networking, how do you unwind? What are your hobbies? What are you into? (laughs)
1: <laughs> well I'm a gardener I like to transform the world with flowers as much as possible I'm a terrible vegetable gardener so I won't claim that one we recently bought a new house so I'm trying to carve out gardens in the area particularly with native plants I also do something my my daughter says I shouldn't use this term bothers her but I uh, do what's called weed warrior work uh, where you're you're clearing invasives out of an area to protect the trees and, and to provide better habitat for native animals and, and better nutrition is because you've taken out the plants that shouldn't be there. So I do that on public land. I'm a walker and a, and, a, and a reader.
0: Wait. So this weed warrior business, if somebody like, do you do that with an organization or is that something you do on your own? Is that an organized event? How does that
1: go? I recent in the the pre town I lived in until recently, I had a, an informal relationship with the city and I maintained about half an acre of woods near my house. I'm going through training and certification with the county now in my new role because it's a county program. The park service trains people and they have work days. And once you're certified, you can, you can kind of maintain an area around it. So we have a lot of woods behind our house and a lot of young forest that's going in. And so I want to make sure those those young trees don't get choked out as they start to grow.
0: I love that. That makes me very curious about what other programs like that. I mean, those must be available all over the country. And maybe people don't even know that they could get involved in them as volunteers and to kind of maintain the native plants in their region.
1: Yeah, my understanding is a lot of park services do it. The program here in Montgomery County was supposedly one of the early ones, but but I haven't looked into other areas. One of the things I'm also thinking about, and I I haven't sort of made a decision yet about what I want to invest in, but, you know, I'm kind of in the the last third of my career, I would say, and so as I think about how to apply what I've learned, I'm looking at where I should be putting my volunteer efforts, and I'm really interested in um, healthcare access issues, and particularly mental health access issues. had reason to bump up against how difficult it is for people who are seeking health mental health services to get those how tied it is to your insurance to your location you know we've been doing a lot this year in our business around virtual care and telehealth and seeing the advantages of that and so I'm I'm kind of feeling my way along thinking about where I want to invest there but But I anticipate a greater and greater amount of my time going forward is going to be in
0: that area. I think that you would be a valuable resource in probably any area that you decide to invest your time.
1: Well, that's kind of you.
0: (laughs) Well, Kathleen, thank you for joining us today. If somebody wanted to reach out, get in touch, follow you on social media or somehow, you know, learn from you in any way possible, what would be the best way for them to do so?
1: Well, I'm on LinkedIn as Kathleen Aller at Inner Systems, and uh, I am an intermittent blogger on the Inner Systems Pulse blog. I tend to uh, come up with unusual visual metaphors for things, so uh, I encourage you to follow me there. That's right. You
0: taught me about cicadas having five (laughs) eyes. (laughs)
1: Yes, I learned about cicadas and have tied that into healthcare analytics.
0: <laughs> I love it. Okay, everybody, go to the InterSystems blog and read Kathleen's post around cicada eyes. It's the coolest thing. <laughs> Thank you for your time today, Kathleen. Thank
1: you. It's good meeting both of you, and and uh, good luck on the rest of the the uh, round the world tour. <laughs>
0: Thank you. <laughs> Thanks for listening. You can learn more about us or this guest by going to our website or visiting us on any of the socials with the handle Hit Like a Girl Pod. Thanks again. See you soon. Hit Like a Girl Podcast is a proud member of the Health Podcast Network. One thing I love about working with them is that they're mission driven which means that they're dedicated to featuring authoritative shows, hosts, and guests who take on the tough topics in healthcare with empathy, expertise, and a commitment to excellence. If you're looking for bingeable content related to the healthcare industry, they've got more than 8,000 episodes on demand waiting for you. From professional development, the patient voice, digital health, innovation and entrepreneurship, and of course, health IT, they've got you covered so this is your official invitation to check them out at healthpodcastnetwork.com